This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer at Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. Well, folks, today we have a fantastic guest. Uh, this is the second part of a three-part series on the uh, Shingo Institute's model and also specifically around the uh, 10 guiding principles uh, within that model. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the, the dimension of continuous improvement, uh, which has five principles in that dimension. And we have a treat for you today. We have a good friend of mine, Dan Fleming, and Dan is heavily experienced uh, in this world of the Shingo Institute. And he was a co-author on the book from the Shingo Institute on continuous improvement on this very dimension. But uh, without me keep on going on, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you work at? What's your role and what is your relationship with the Shingo Institute? So thank you both for having me here. So I work for GDMP, which is Greater Boston Manufacturing Partnerships. I'm in the Boston, Massachusetts area. I'm director of consulting services. I've been involved in Lean for about 30 years, maybe more, involved in the Shingo Prize for about the same in the Shingo Institute. So GDMP is a licensed affiliate of the Shingo Institute. I'm a Shingo Prize examiner. I'm a Shingo course facilitator. So I teach all six courses. Uh, I've been a fan of Dr. Shingo and the Shingo model for many, many years, but I'm involved in lean and healthcare, um, so I'm happy to be here. Well, Dan, once again, thank you very much for being here. Um, us folks here at Baptist, we are very familiar with the uh, Shingo Institute. Uh, I don't know how much I know you and you and Skip are, are, are buddies, and and I don't know how much you know about our Baptist management system. But we have a, a management system that was developed by by Skip and, and our chief operating officer, uh, Dr. Paul DePriest. And it is basically, I'm not going to say basically, it's, it is heavily based on the Shingo uh, guiding principles. We have 11 guiding principles. They're divided up into people, process, and, and system principles, very similar to Shing uh, the Shingo model. I know that on our, our, our first episode, we, we spoke about the, um, the, the base layer of, of, of the Shingo Triangle, uh, talked about cultural enablers, respect for uh, every individual, leading with humility. And today, we, we're going to go to the second layer, and that is the continuous improvement part. And as Skip mentioned, you know, um, well, I, I'm going to let you tell, tell us, I know there are five of those guiding principles within the the, the continuous improvement domain. T uh, just tell us what those what those are. So the first is seek perfection, which is a never-ending pursuit of better. It's a constant sort of mindset and behavior for improvement, and it's meant to get everybody engaged in this improvement work as a as a sort of an ongoing and a regular thing versus a kind of a start-stop or a six-month program. Second one is embrace scientific thinking, which I think fits the healthcare community really well. I think the healthcare community uses scientific thinking on patients. We need to use that same type of thinking to improve process and to improve outcomes. So scientific thinking, I think, is built into all of us as individuals. You know, we think scientifically, um, but there's also scientific methods that have scientific thinking built into them because improvement is not just random, unstructured change. We should use methods for it, and it's all based on the scientific thinking model. 
a focus on process is pretty straightforward, although I think in healthcare sometimes, um, and it's true of any other industries as well, they don't think of things in a process way, that there's an input, a process, and an output. They think of it as a series of tasks that I get, not necessarily a process where there's sort of a series of steps that can be studied. But I think every sort of lean technique and tool is aimed at getting us closer to the process, getting us to focus more on the process for the purpose of outcomes. In some industries, there's a little bit too much focus on the outcome and leaving the process up to chance. But all the tools are geared towards getting us closer to the process. Assuring quality at the source is a real focus on quality improvement, a real focus on quality at the source versus sort of after the fact or trying to sort of recover or trying to understand what happened last week, last month, or last weekend. So a real focus on quality. Um, I think quality improvement has been around for a very long time, 1930s with Walter Schuhart and the 50s with Dr. Deming. But most organizations sort of talk a good game when it comes to quality. They really focused on quantity and schedule attainment and getting the work done. Even problems are spoken about in context of we're going to miss the schedule, you know, quality problems. So it's a real focus on quality, of course. And lastly, improve flow and pull, which I know is technically a little bit more difficult for most industries to understand. But when you think of flow and pull, and I know we're going to get into it deeper, the, the easiest way to think of it is kind of the opposite, like no flow or a push system. And we can mm -hmm. talk about those. But there's five principles in that category. Um, it's five of the ten. So the meat of the principles is in the improved category. And most of most people's work in improvement work is focused on the process. It's focused on problem solving. So you would think that the principles would sort of be people's wheelhouse or easier connection to the principles, but it's not because it doesn't teach tools and techniques. It teaches the purpose and the why we do these tools and techniques. So it's a little different um, in terms of a connection to what I think is where most of the focus is anyway on the process, on problem solving. Do you, do you, do you feel like that out of these five, is there one that you would weight more heavily or are they all weighted equally? And, and I guess is what I'm getting to if a, let's say an organization, no matter what you're doing, whether you're in healthcare or manufacturing, if you say, well, we can't, what's the first one that we're going to work on if we wanted to, you know, let's say, well, let's say we're, 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 you know, the culture, we've got the culture, we feel like we have the culture where we need it. And now we're going to start uh, applying these, um, these process or continuous improvement principles? I think you're right in terms of the second way you approach that. Um, most organizations will assess themselves according to category of principles, cultural enablers, continuous improvement, enterprise alignment. And they assess themselves initially that we're strong in this area and weak in another. So they'll say things like we're strong in the improve area and we're pretty good in the align area. We're weak in the cultural enablers, the people aspect. And they start looking at those two principles, respect and humility. Um, in terms of the other five or the 10 in total, even in the improved category, there's lots of discussion around what the proper order is. Like, where should we start? Is this is the way I spoke, seek perfection, then embrace, then focus on process. You know, is it that order or is it some other order? But I think assessing um, is a good way of determining which is sort of a weak spot. Um, there's probably a weak spot in all five, but in the end, you can't maybe do them all at once, so it makes sense. Every organization is a little bit different. Um, so I think the assessment process, whether it be by dimension or category or by principle, is a good thing. There's two ways to assess internally and externally. An external assessment would be maybe by the Shingo Institute or a Shingo affiliate, 
and essentially kind of covers blind spots or things you didn't think of or your strengths from an outsider's or weaknesses from an outsider's standpoint. But yeah, I don't know there's any particular path to the principles themselves. And I think every organization is a little bit different in terms of their strength and weakness. So, I mean, initially, I think it makes sense to start with people, with the people, then the process, and then purpose, because it's hard to get everybody heading in the same direction. But organizations already exist, and they already have things in place. So they're always trying to assess where they are and try to make an improvement. Skip? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just to build on that, a really good point, uh, Dr. Mason and, and Dan. You know, one of the things I see, whether it be with our 11 guiding principles that make up the Baptist management system, or whether it be the 10 guiding principles uh, in the Shingo model, is I see quite often that people look at the principles as 10 independent principles to be implemented versus 10 interdependent. And, and do you see the same thing, Dan? Yeah, that's a, they, they realize quickly that they're dependent, but I don't think they realize how truly dependent they are of each other. They really connect. Some are, you know, we're talking about a quality issue, it kind of lends itself to quality or a process issue lends up, but they're highly connected to each other. They're they're very dependent on each other, um, so they realize it. Um, I also like what you had shared in, in recently, Skip, when we were together. You said a lot of organizations see the principles and they put them on some sort of island as if they're on their own, on their own, when they really are not by themselves. They're really a part of your operating system, your management system. So they don't they're not sitting out there. They're kind of learning them sort of in in separation from the rest of everything they're doing. Well, that's a good point. So on that note, speak to how the Shingo Institute looks at the prin- principles. Did did they discover them or is it something different? So they were discovered through thought leaders like Dr. Shingo and others. So the original Toyota production system had four principles. Toyota might call them philosophies. And it's things like customer first, employees the most valuable resource, process focus, you know, direct observation and Kaizen or improvement is the way. So there was four original, and they were always really, really important in a basics of lean class. But most organizations start to focus a bit on tools too much. But the Shingo Institute looked at Dr. Shingo's books and some other thought leaders and said, I think there's more than four. I think there's like 10 or 11, and they're in multiple categories. I think the categories help for learning purposes, people process purpose, um, but they really are sort of highly dependent on each other or interdependent on each other. Talk, talk to us a little bit about, uh, b- before we started uh, started recording, um, you said that the GBMP d- decided to experiment, and, and, you know, Skip loves, we love talking about experiments, is, you know, hey, would this work in the healthcare setting? And you said y'all, y'all, y'all tried that experiment back in 2004 with uh, Beth Israel Dickiness. Talk to us about what... What kind of drove you guys to what was the motivation to say, hey, ask the question, will this work in healthcare?" And, and tell us a little bit about that experiment. So it happened through obviously being involved in healthcare as all of us are as, as consumers or as patients. But um, I think at the same exact time, the healthcare community in, in Massachusetts were, all, were also reaching out for assistance. And in particular, this particular Boston Hospital reached out in 2004. I was not involved in that particular engagement, so I can't speak directly to it. I started becoming involved in healthcare in 2009, so I've been involved for a long time. I do know the individual. I do know it was was an experiment to say, 
how would this sort of lean methodology work in a healthcare setting? So they actually used our manufacturing material and we tweaked it a bit, just a little bit for a healthcare environment. And the healthcare sort of chief improvement officer and other folks helped to further connect it to the healthcare industry. And very quickly, there was a real strong connection that actually there is something here. We like the focus on people. We like the culture focus on you know going to the workplace and direct observation. We like the focus on systems and tools and about management's role. So they quickly said there is something here and they started adopting it as their sort of methodology. We developed with them a workbook series. So it's not PowerPoints, it's just a workbook series, like a self-learning guide, which is on our website. Um, so they use a self, which is all based on sort of the Shingo model with a different, you know, philosophy, a booklet on principles and philosophies, a booklet on management's role and a booklet on tools and techniques. And they actually teach using those three book, separate booklets, which is now combined into one large book, they use that, they continue to use that booklet as a teaching mechanism for all their sort of folks involved in Lean. So once that was a highly, we obviously expanded it with that uh, one hospital, but in 2009, we developed very specific material for all of the, you know, New England health systems. And there's a lot lot of different um, things that we're teaching, such as an eight-day certificate course or a five-day lean management course or a one-day introduction to lean in healthcare. So lots of different exciting things happening in healthcare. So to use an example and, and you know push back if you disagree, Dan, to use an example just to let our listeners kind of put some meat on the bones, you know, one of the principles of the Shingo Institute is embrace scientific thinking. We love scientific thinking here. And one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that that gets manifested uh, in our uh, healthcare system is with our improvement kata, coaching kata. But let me connect another principle. I would argue that you could be the greatest engineer on planet Earth, but and you may have really learned the te- technical aspect of the improvement kata, coaching kata, but if you do not show respect for every individual and if you do not lead with humility, you'll never be able to coach that individual. So in my mind, that's a very easy example of the interdependence between embrace scientific thinking, lead with humility, and respect every individual. Am I thinking about that the same way you would? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So if we approach improvement kata or any other scientific methodology without using the cultural enablers principles of respect and humility we're going to do it with in the wrong spirit we'll do it with the wrong in the wrong way meaning we'll solve it ourselves we won't engage people we won't ask questions we won't be open to to their ideas we won't be open to anything we won't be showing respect and humility so i think respect and humility are extremely important to look through everything we're doing as it relates to the improve and the um, category of principles and the enterprise alignment or purpose when we put it through those two lenses, we do them in, the, in a much, much better way. We get better results. And it's a good example of their interdependency or how highly dependent they are on each other. A really good example. Improvement COD is one scientific methodology, but most of the methodologies that we learn around problem solving and improvement absolutely are. And there's a long list of them. So five wide root cause analysis, six step problem solving, an eight step problem solving, A3 problem solving, DMAIC, which is six sigma. These are all scientific methods that build scientific thinking into them. You don't need all of them. You just need a few of them like Kata. And Kata has a really good methodology, scientific method, along with this really good coaching and learning model. 
But yes, it must be done with the right lenses, and that's what the principles do for us. And, and, and you talked about you talked about a lot of different tools, and it seems that really now a lot of people would beg to, to differ, but the tool doesn't matter really. I mean, as long as you have a, a tool that works, Correct. you know, it, it, it's it's the the thinking uh, b- behind those tools that really really matters. It's just a tool. It's, it's just, just a tool. It's just a tool, and Toyota would say that too, who does this the best. They're simply tools, and sometimes when we do them, we're kind of mixing the means with the end. We're practicing tools for the purpose and our goal to do kata, our goal to do, you know, whatever. But they're saying, you're mixing the means with the end. We simply use kata, we simply use whatever to achieve some other end. Like the end in itself is not kata, the end in itself is not an A3, the, A, the, the end is to solve problems and to make improvements. Another strong connection to embrace scientific thinking that I think people miss is that we make a strong connection to the tools I rattled off, and certainly cut is one of them. But I think the work itself, like standard work, developing the standard of the agreed-upon method for how we do things, should be a scientific method. It's not just me as the individual who's been around or the manager or whomever deciding the methodology. It should be a scientific method where we work together to figure out the best way to do it. Um, so standardized work or standard work, scientific methodology. So now let's take let's take the conversation to this point. I know uh, as a Shingo examiner, I've been involved with this, and, and Dan, you have heavily been involved in this, and, and your organization does assessments too. But one of the things you're looking for is behaviors when you go into organizations. You're looking for uh, what Dr. Edgar Schein would call artifacts. And those behaviors are artifacts. If I can pick up a, a phone and take a picture of it, or if I can record it, or if I can see it, what would be, sometimes people have a hard time getting their mind wrapped around that, what would be some behaviors that you have or might see that would show, yes, there's evidence of this principle, or you know what, there's concerns that this principle has really not taken root because of the opposite behavior. What would be some examples specifically in the continuous improvement principles, those five principles that we're focused on? So good question. Um, I think the word behavior and the word culture was always sort of abstract. What do we mean by that? But I think the Shingle model does a really good job at defining exactly what we mean by behavior and exactly what we mean by culture. So behavior or behavioral evidence of the artifact, you know, that's an action. That's somebody doing something. So it's behavioral evidence I can see with my eyes or I can infer it from a board that's got no information on it or something. So we are looking for behaviors. We're not just looking at the tools and the results of those tools. We are absolutely looking for behaviors. So as it relates to, say, embrace scientific thinking, the behavior that we're looking for would be that um, so the, the executives of the leadership team would encourage the management team to develop those systems and tools like improvement kata. They would speak about the the, the getting a better outcome by using those methodologies versus not. So they would encourage management to develop those techniques. They would see management teaching those techniques. They would see management leading a problem-solving or coaching a kata session. They would see team members or associates or staff involved in problem-solving, involved in that coaching session. So the tool can be there, but we're looking for behaviors as it relates to the role of the executive, as it relates to the manager, as it relates to the team member. And while everybody needs to know the principle and guide their own behavior, 
Uh, the executive's role is to sort of live by that principle, to say this is an important thing for us to know and for us to develop some systems and tools that has this thinking in it. It's management's role to develop those systems and tools. And then everybody should use the tools, but team members, associates, staff, they're utilizing those tools. So in a traditional environment where we don't see that behavior, what we'll see is no methodologies at all being used for solving problems. So all problems are solved via instinct, intuition, um, experience. And while that works for a certain amount of problems, problems in the workplace are complex. They get difficult very quickly. And in order to get a better outcome, you need a scientific method for it. What we also see in the wrong behavior is that the manager, I guess, would be the chief problem solver. Just pass all the problems to me, pile them up my desk, I'll eventually get to all of them. So it would be singular, managers sitting in a seat, their job is to solve every single problem. Staff is not involved, leadership's disconnected. So we're aiming to see the proper behavior of an executive manager team member as it relates to every one of these principles. Gotcha. I, you know, myself mainly, I, w- I was a naysayer, meaning I, I was the person who said nah, that that won't work in healthcare because healthcare is so much different. And, and, and I've been proven wrong, obviously, and, and, you know, countless others because many health systems are doing this well now you know the healthcare uh healthcare is way way behind you know some people say 30 40 50 years behind where manufacturing is but but one thing that that has always you know in in manufacturing the customer you know you want to focus on what the customer wants the customer wants a car that does this 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 and this but that customer is not actually involved in the manufacturing and, the, and working on the line. But healthcare is different because the ultimate customer is the patient. But at the same time, that patient is involved in all the processes. What, you know, how, how do we how do we deal with that? Yeah, so they may be too involved, actually, or maybe they're not involved enough. So sure. it's challenging. Every industry is challenging. It doesn't mean that manufacturing is easy. Yes, it's different. And, and even in just an, an office environment, it's challenging an office environment, but it doesn't mean that it was easy for, say, I mean, we're talking about a car. A car might have limited options and choices, but it's a complicated device. It has 10,000 or 30,000 parts, depending on how you count them, and they can produce a car in a minute. It comes off the end of the line. It doesn't take a minute to make it, but it's producing a finished car every minute. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's definitely different, but it doesn't mean it was easy in, in manufacturing either. Um, I think in some respects, um, it's hard in all industries and in healthcare, it's, you know, it's no different. There is a series of, actually, one thing that really is different in healthcare, another thing that's really different in healthcare, I guess, besides the fact that the patient's fully involved. Uh, when I said they were not involved, I said sometimes, I was thinking that sometimes they don't take your advice. Sure. They're not involved enough. And that's, and it's reason- a variable sometimes that we cannot control. Correct. We, we try to, but ultimately we can't. Correct. And the other thing in healthcare that's a concern probably is that healthcare is different in that you can do everything right and still get a bad outcome. Everything can be perfect, but still there's a bad outcome. So it's more challenging, but for the same reasons it's more challenging, it's actually more important because we're talking about people, we're talking about patients, right? We're not talking about cars, we're not talking about the pen I'm holding or a notebook that I'm writing on. We're talking about people. So typically the arguments about you know, it's hard for us because they're usually precisely why we should do it. It's exactly the same reason why we should do it, because it's hard, because it's patients, because it's complex, because whatever. 
um, it's precisely why. And it's true that a lot of people have, as you said, skepticism at the beginning. That's a normal response to change, and that's why change is so hard. But you're showing some humility to say that, and all of us had to go through that curve. You know, everybody's not an expert at the beginning. One of the, uh, one, you know, I wish we had an hour that we could talk about each and every uh, uh, continuous improvement principle, but but sort of, as Skip talked about once again before we started, kind of the unicorn, the enigma in healthcare is, is flow and pull. And, and, you know, we struggle with that here at Baptist. In your experience, is that is that, you know, the main one that other healthcare systems struggle with? Uh, what, what are your thoughts or, or from your experience? Absolutely, but it's not just healthcare. So a lot of industries struggle with that particular principle. You know, some of them are more obvious, like focus on process or embrace scientifically or sheer quality of the source. They struggle with seek perfection. They don't really know what that means fully. But absolutely, flow and pull is a challenging one for all industries and maybe particularly in healthcare. Um, it also feels a little technical when we're talking about flow and pull. So what does it actually mean and how do we do it? One of the reasons it's a challenge is because it's typically 180 degrees opposite of what we do now. Like we don't have flow and we don't have pull. We have the opposite of it. And it, it's very sort of opposite or counterintuitive like many lean techniques. You have to sort of wrap your mind around it. But I can tell you that it's a principle like every other. And being a principle, um, there are consequences. So there are consequences to every single principle. I mean, the principles are universal, timeless, meaning they apply everywhere and always will. And certainly they're harder in certain industries like healthcare. Um, they're evident, but they're not always evident when you first hear about them. Right? They're evident, but you have to learn them for it to become evident. And most importantly, there are consequences. So, you know, I think it's hard because what do we mean by flow and pull? It's kind of weird wording. I think we have to describe all of them, but maybe this one maybe a little further for people to understand. So, for example, are you familiar with JIT, just in time? Sure. So I think the, the flow and pull principles are connected directly to JIT, just in time. And just in time is a sort of a philosophical statement about customers to provide what's needed, when it's needed, the quantity needed to give them what they want, when they want it, the quantity they want, or the right service to the right patient at the right time. But other than those words about just in time, like the right service to the right patient at the right time, being some lofty philosophical statement about what customers want, what it really means, GIT, is why can't we do that? What prevents us for, from providing exactly what they want, when they want it, and the quantity they want it in? And it's not just patients, in particular in terms of patient flow, but it could be pharmacy, it could be central sterilizer, it could be lab, it could be you know blood, just outpatient blood. Can we give them exactly what they want when they want it? So when we look at our process through the lenses of that just-in-time principle, uh, we start to see a lot of gaps between um, being able to give them what they want when they want it, the quantity they want. The typical process in terms of flow and pull is no flow, uneven flow, nonsensical flow, or feast or famine, you know, hurry up and slow down work. So, so it's, it's uh, all almost, of the above here at Baptist yeah. sometimes. I mean, and, and not just here, but but in other healthcare systems too. The one area that's really challenging is the ER or the ED, and they'll say things like, you know, it's highly unpredictable. We have no idea where to get. You know, it's not scheduled like some of those other departments. So it's hard for us because the truth is EDs are highly predictable, probably. They know exactly the number of patients they're going to get day and night, weekend, holidays, full moons, whatever, holidays. You know, they know the exact 
typical volume, and they probably know the types of patients in the unit they're going to end up on, or if they're going to be admitted or not. So even in places where it's highly unpredictable in terms of flow and pull, um, so it does, it's challenging for sure, and certainly in ED it's challenging, but it asks us to unravel some of that and simply improve patient flow. Now we're talking about flow, there's a lots of different flows. There's patient flow, there's inventory or supply flow, there's equipment flow, and then there's us resources, there's people. So it gets complicated and typically they're out of phase with each other, right? I got the patient in front of me, but I don't have the order. I get the patient in the order, but I'm, I don't have the resources now. So something's out of sync. Um, and there's two types of delay, process and lot delay. So process is I've, you know, I've, I got two of those three or three of those four different things that we need, but I'm missing one of them. So I have to put the whole thing on hold. Uh, it's kind of a scheduling or a timing thing. Lot delay is we just like batching. We do everything in big batches and it slows the process down. It feels efficient when you're doing a batch. High, I feel like I'm highly efficient, but I'm, I'm, I'm operating what I think is efficiently at someone else's expense. So batching causes flow issues and lots of other issues. Um, and certainly um, the, the sort of the, the, re the different flows that aren't in sync with one another, which we're calling a process delay. So it's complicated. It's a little technical for sure. Um, but there are tools to help us understand how to improve flow. So in a hospital, for example, when you look across the hospital, we're talking about large departments, you know, to move departments closer together, such as ED and imaging or pharmacy and, and ED or something, that's a big hospital change, design change. Inside those departments, though, it's a lot easier. It's, it amounts to rearranging the furniture, rearranging the equipment. So labs and central sterilizing and pharmacy, they're looking internally to improve flow. And there's a huge amount of opportunity inside those departments that we can make and we're doing all the time versus the larger system view, which is a, across the hospital or all those outpatient sites. That's harder for sure. sure. But that's a system improvement versus something very small inside the department. Not that hard to do. So as tempted as I am to want yeah. to talk about each principle, uh -huh. I'm going to shift us a little bit. And, you know, I would love our listeners to consider to go out to the Shingo Institute website and really get a tremendous amount of information and learn about workshops that Dan and his company teach. But specifically, the principles that we're talking, not only are they interdependent, but the principles are part of a model that we call the Shingo model. And those principles are connected to systems and tools and results. Talk to us a little bit about that model, because that's a very systemic model. Talk to us a little bit about that, Dan. So thank you. The, the Shingo model has five diamonds, and they're all equally important. Um, the, the, the philosophy of principles diamond um, is meant to guide influence um, behavior. And the best way they work is they influence our own personal behavior. You can certainly hold each other accountable. But once we know them at a deep enough level, we're going to automatically guide our own behavior. Like the idea of respect and humility. Once we learn them, we'll start to practice them. Some of the other principles, obviously, are a little bit harder, like flow and pull. But they're meant to influence behavior. Um, I think principles fit really well with organizational things like mission, vision, values, and principles. So they're organization-wide, they apply to all of us. I see mission, vision, values, the closest word probably is the values word to principles, um, but they fit in that realm. Principles are a little bit more specific though to continuous improvement or enterprise excellence. So I see them as even more specific and more actionable because they're tied to the improvement process so directly versus some of those other things, mission, vision, values, and 
being a little cynical at the moment, but they feel a little bit aspirational. Like what I want to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. The principles are more specific to how we behave on a day-to-day basis. So once we know this, once we know the principles, we can develop systems and tools, such as the examples of sort of improvement kata to, to live by those principles. Uh, systems principles can guide behavior to a certain extent, but it's systems that actually drives behavior. Um, so what I mean by that is you can ask someone to participate in problem solving, for example, in the absence of a system and a tool. And some might. Those early adopter types says, I'll problem solve, sure. But most people want to problem solve in the context of a tool or a system because it's productive, it's respectful, or you can get somewhere. So systems and tools embedded or aligned to those principles um, tell us what the ideal behaviors are. It's systems and tools, though, that we use. There's different types of them. There's certainly systems and tools to do the work, systems and tools to run the business, but there's also systems and tools for improvement and for problem solving. And Shigeo Shinko himself, when he talked about systems, he was talking about work systems initially, systems to do the work, systems to run the business. But he developed improvement systems and tools to improve those same work systems. The work systems was the focus of improvement. The improvement systems were the tools that he used to do it. But today, whether it's a work system or improvement system, we can look at those in the context of a of a of a shingle model. And lastly, the systems and tools we use to produce some sort of result or some sort of outcome. Uh, the center fifth diamond is culture and behavior, and we define what culture and behavior is within the shingle model very specifically. But I think a lot of models in the improvement environment have systems and tools already in it. Certainly, might have philosophy and for the purpose of a result. But the difference in the shingle model is how strong the connection is to culture and behavior. And when there is a strong connection to culture and behavior informed by the principle, what that means is we have sustainable results. Without the cultural <clears throat> principles and the cultural behavioral part of it, they're not lasting, they're short term. It's like, um, what are we gonna do this week or this month? Having a principles-based focus, long-term thinking, um, sustainable results, which is the purpose of the model. So I think there's something there. I think there's something for all of us to learn in this continuous improvement environment if we focus a little bit more on the model. Fantastic, Dan. I know this was rapid fire. I know that we, uh, <laughs> Dr. Mason and I came at you hard, but we really wanted our listeners to uh, get as much out of you. You know, Dan, like I've said, uh, teaches all of the Shingo workshops. Uh, uh, you know, the very first workshop, if you're not familiar, uh, with the Shingo Institute, you want to learn more, I would strongly encourage you to check out the Discover Excellence Workshop. Uh, Dan just does an amazing job at that, uh, whether it's virtual, whether it's hybrid, whether it's in person. And uh, Dan, just thank you so much, my friend, for coming on today, sharing with us. I hope you'll come back again in the future. But uh, for those that want to learn more about the Shingo Institute, please, please, please go out to the Shingo Institute website. There's so much more that you can learn. And once again, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, we are so grateful for you, Dan. And thank you so much for spending some time with us, my friend. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you, Dr. Mason.